All right. Now, listen, I'm usually pressing forward, right? But I have to share a little bit about yesterday with you. It was a beautiful day, wasn't it? And I took the time to go to Forest Park and spend a little quiet time with my two favorite people, my lovely wife and our father, and commune with him. And it was so good till I'm still in yesterday a little bit. So anyway, let's just lift our hearts to him. Father, we just thank you so much for your love, your mercy, and your grace towards us. We thank you for sweet communion, for fellowship. We appreciate access to you. And we pray today that our hearts will be receptive to your word, and you'll bring real change into our lives. Bless the pastor in Jesus' name. Amen. Um, how's everybody doing? All right, good. Yeah, exciting. I, I can I can hear I can't hear you guys out there. You got to give me a little more like yeah. I want some. I need some amens today because I've had an exciting week personally. Um, <laughs> there we go. If you are on our email distribution list, which I was, we send an email out like once every week or every couple of weeks, sometimes every three weeks, something like that every month. Um, then you would know that like uh, uh, from the email. You would know about the Easter egg hunt. You would know about the baptisms. And you would know that on Wednesday, my wife gave birth to Augustine Elliot Rome. Yeah. Do not let his size deceive you. This kid has pipes. He can blow. This is the loudest. There's more, there's more vocal range encapsulated in that little guy. Daddy slept in the, in the playroom at the other end of the house last night just to get away. I'm geographically as far away as I could be from the child's mouth. Um, those of you guys who have little kids and you, you know, maybe you're trying to figure out how do I block the noise, this is how you do it uh, right here, guys. You just take the, the baby wrapping. My wife is so cruel, she took that picture while I was sleeping. Not cool. So she's at home today with him. He's making noise. Life is good. Um, this is an exciting time. We are talking about, we're, we're continuing our three-part series, Three Days That Changed Everything. Uh, and this, the, the reason that this time is so great is that as we enter into the Easter period, we're thinking about rebirth, we're thinking about new life, we're thinking about resurrection, we're thinking about, you know, it's warm outside, you, you know, you, your nose hairs don't freeze dry the moment you walk out of your house, we're thinking about, it's just getting, it's just getting nice, Right. But here's the deal. Here's the problem. You don't get Easter without Good Friday. You don't get the resurrection without the crucifixion. You don't get new birth or rebirth without something old dying. And so we're spending time these, these few weeks here thinking about those three days, that Friday, that Saturday, that Sunday in A.D. 33 that changed everything. And today we're focusing on Saturday. And the inspiration for this whole sermon series was a sermon that I heard by a pastor from Menlo Park Presbyterian Church in California. I, I heard him come. He was here in January, and he spoke at the InterVarsity Conference uh, downtown St. Louis. And, and 
It was amazing because you would anticipate that if he's going to go talk to InterVarsity students, and InterVarsity people, and we have three of them on staff here in our congregation, and they're awesome, and we love all three of you guys, Andy, Alice, and Ryan. But they, they, uh, they go onto campuses. They raise all their own support. They go onto campuses. They, they teach the gospel. They sit down. They go through Bible studies with students and grad students and faculty people, and they're awesome. And so John Ortberg was going to preach to them at this you know, big conference. So you would think that what he would do is get up there and give this rah-rah speech and get them frothing at the mouth and say, you know, you guys are awesome. Get out there and do it. Change the world. But he didn't do that. He talked about disappointment. He talked about those times in our lives when the reality doesn't match up with the expectation, when our hopes and and the realization of our hopes don't match. He talked about the Saturday between the Friday that Jesus was crucified and the Sunday that he rose from the dead. He talked about that Friday. And I'm going to talk about that, fr- that Saturday, rather. He talked about that Saturday. And I'm going to talk about that Saturday, do, too. And, and just to get the timing issue out of the way, every Easter, you know, people say, you know, how, how did Jesus actually fulfill the, the prophecy that he would be buried for three days because if he died on a Friday and he rose on a Saturday, really, you know, it's just like one day, right? Sat, or he rose on a Sunday, it was just one day. So, so how does that work? And so I'm going to answer that question very quickly and then we'll dive into the meat of it. And here's the answer. Different people calculate time differently. Okay, so here's a hypothetical situation and this is for the men. Men, you're going on a business trip. You leave on a Friday. Your wife is at home with the kids. You're gone all day Saturday. You come back on Sunday. Your wife says, you've been gone three days. You say, no, I was here Friday, and I'm here Sunday, so really I was only gone one day. Who's right, man, you or her? She's right, right? She's always right. Guys, that was just a little side marital tip from B-Rome. So so they, they... in, in the ancient Israelite culture, they, calcu- they would calculate a day. If any portion of the day was used, they would calculate the whole day. So the Friday, Saturday, and Sunday constitute the three days. So the Bible works against us on this one, guys. We're, we're going to lose. We're going to lose that argument. Um, last week, you remember, we talked about Friday. Friday was the darkest day in history. Friday was the day that Jesus was dragged before the Sanhedrin. Uh, before a group of people who wanted to see him bleed. They wanted him dead. Uh, He was tried then before the Roman governor, Pilate. He was stripped uh, naked. He was scourged on his back until blood ran down his back. He was flogged. He was mocked. He was disgraced. A crown of thorns was planted upon his head. He was then given a scepter in his right hand, and they they knelt down, and they mocked, and they sneered at him, and they said, Hail, King of the Jews. And then they dragged him up a hill called the Skull, and they, they, like a a butterfly that's pinned to a corkboard, they pinned his body to this cross, nails through his hands and his feet, and they crucified him. And there he hung bearing the pain, bearing the shame, bearing the suffering, bearing the sin, bearing the curse that you and I were supposed to bear. He bore it for us, and it was the darkest day ever. It was Friday. And then, then of course, next week we're going to talk about Sunday. 
Okay, and Sunday is the day that we celebrate. Sunday is the day that death is defeated by life. Sunday is the day that sorrow is swallowed up in joy. Sunday is the day where, where there's triumph over defeat. Sunday is the day uh, that, the, that the membrane between heaven and earth is split and, God, and, and we have access to God and God has access to, to us through the power of Jesus, through the atoning power of Jesus. And, and Sunday is the day that has changed the world. The world has never gotten over it. And as Ortberg describes it, he, he says that Sunday, uh, that, that, that Sunday, he said, Pentecostals still shout about it. Charismatics still dance about it. Baptists still say amen over it. Catholics still fry fish because of it. Presbyterians still study it. Congregationalists still have meetings about it. Non-denominationalists still affirm all of the above expressions of it. <laughs> Episcopalians still toast it with sherry. Our world has not gotten over that day. And we're going to celebrate that day next Sunday. So bring your friends. Bring your family. We're going to celebrate that day. Um, But that's not what we're talking about today. Today we're not talking about Sunday. We're not talking about Friday. We're going to talk about Saturday. And Saturday is that middle day. It's that confusing, uncomfortable middle day where nobody knows what's going on. Nobody knows what's happening. Jesus has died, and his followers are stunned. They cannot believe what's happened. Uh, For us, Saturday is that day after the greatest tragedy in your life. It's the day after the crash, but before the rescue. It's the day after the loss, but before the recovery. It's the in-between day that you and I experience in our lives. It's not the worst day of our life. It's the day and the weeks and the months after the worst day of our lives when we're trying to make sense of the worst day of our lives and we're trying to determine whether there's hope for a better day. That's Saturday. Um, A lot of times in churches you hear stories of great faith. You hear about uh, people being saved and relationships being restored and people being healed. And you read the stories of the Bible and all these great and miraculous and wondrous things. And you may be tempted to say, yeah, but that's not my story. My story is not a story of triumph. My story is not a story of hope. My story is a story of struggling and frustration. And you may be tempted to think that you're the only one that feels that way. You've got a, uh, a wife who doesn't understand you. You've got a, a husband with whom you can't communicate. You, your educational pursuits are not working out. Your career is stalling out. Your boss is a jerk, right? Your kids are, are, are out of control. Your car is breaking down. You know, it's bad. Your dog is ugly, whatever. I mean, it's just things are not going well. And you're going, I am not a victorious kind of story person. I'm a struggling story person. You pray out, you cry out to God, and what you get back is silence. My wife and I have some dear friends that are from another state, and they uh, desperately wanted to have children. And we were friends with a group of people, and everybody in that group seemed to be having kids. And every party, every little dinner event, every time everybody got together, there were babies bouncing on people's knees, uh, uh, there was the t- small talk and it, you know, inevitably turned to babies and telling stories about babies. And this couple, you could feel their, 
pain as they sat there because they had been trying and trying, and it had been years that they had been trying. Um, They had done everything right. They had played by the rules. They had gotten married. They had gotten good jobs. Uh, They got a house. Everything was dialed in. Everything was right, and they were missing this puzzle piece in their life. They wanted to have this baby. And one day, they came over. There was a gleam in their eye. They were ecstatic, and they said, we're pregnant. We're going to have a baby. And everybody celebrated. Everybody high-fived. Everybody started swapping stories and telling birth narratives and all of that kind of stuff, right? Everybody was ecstatic. But a few weeks later, my friend, the, the, the husband, uh, came to me, and his demeanor had totally changed. His wife had lost the baby that she had miscarried. And, you know, they, they were just blown away because they had told everybody, you know, all it was a late miscarriage. They had told all of their friends. Everyone was so excited for them. And now they're having to go through all of these very difficult, painful conversations of saying, actually, it didn't work out. So you could feel their, their pain in this situation. And then a few, I would say a few months later, she got pregnant again. But this time there wasn't a celebration. This time it was just very low-key. It was a private conversation, a sharing of facts. Hey, I just want you to know we're pregnant. But they couldn't really celebrate because of the anxiety of what happens if this happens again. Um, And in fact, it did happen again. Uh, And the second time, they were completely crushed. They had both grown up in big families. They both had dreamed of having you know, a bunch of kids, a big house full of kids. That's what they wanted. That's what they imagined for their life. And it just wasn't looking like that was going to happen. And so they entered into their Saturday. It wasn't the Friday when they lost the baby. It was the Saturday, which is the weeks and the months and the years following the Friday when they're going, what's going to happen here? Is there hope for us? And what's strange about Saturday in the scripture is that there's almost nothing written about it. Almost nothing. If you look across scholarship and articles and books and blogs and, you know, movies and TVs, you find find tens of thousands of pages written about Friday and written about Sunday. Right? You, You find that there's gallons of ink spilled writing about this day when Jesus was crucified and the day that he resurrected. But you don't find anything written about Saturday, that time in between where nothing is happening, where there's just confusion, right? In fact, even the gospel writers, uh, Mark doesn't even mention Saturday. He says Jesus, uh, Jesus was buried on Friday, and then after the Sabbath was passed, then it starts right into Sunday. Skip Saturday altogether. We're not going to talk about Saturday. John does the same thing. It says um, Jesus was buried on Friday, and then the next sentence says now on Sunday morning. It completely skips Saturday. Luke only gives us one sentence, and all he says is that after the women saw Jesus buried in the tomb, they went home and observed the Sabbath. That's all basically it says. Nothing, no description. What did they do? What was said? What happened to Peter? What was James doing? What was Bartholomew? Nothing. Uh, Matthew gives us one paragraph, and all he says, and he doesn't talk at all about Jesus' followers. He talks about how the high priests and the Pharisees went to, uh, to seal up the tomb to ensure that Jesus, uh, was, his body would not be stolen from the tomb. So you've got all of this massive description about Friday and Sunday. You've got nothing about Saturday. So what was happening on Saturday? 
What were his disciples doing? We know that one had gone out and hung himself from a tree, Judas. We know that the rest had scattered and were in hiding. And so I imagine at that time that their minds were spinning. I think about Peter. What was Peter thinking on Saturday? This is the day not only had he denied following Jesus, not only had he, you know, in the moment of crisis when you can stand up and, 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 you know, and follow him to the end, he denied him. I think Peter had to have been thinking back to that moment when Jesus, uh, when Peter realized that Jesus was the Messiah and when he said, you're, you're the Messiah, the Christ, and Jesus said, your name is Peter. He changed his name. He changed his identity. He said, upon this rock, I will build my church and the gates of hell will not prevail against it. I'm going to give you the keys of the kingdom, Peter. And Peter's thinking about that. And now it's Saturday and Jesus is dead and buried. And he's going, what church? What rock? What kingdom of heaven? What keys? What is he? What was he talking about? What happened? What happened? What? Who am I? He's thinking. This man that I was following turns out to be nothing. I think all of his followers had to be wondering who, in fact, was Jesus. We've been following him for three years. We've given our lives to him. We've dedicated our heart, soul, mind, and body to him. We've followed him through thick and thin. But who was he? Was he some sort of con man? Was he some sort of charlatan? Was he just some kind of snake oil salesman that that was like, pretending to, to heal people so that people would follow him? Is he like one of the faith healers that puts the transistor radio in their ear, you know, and then puts fake blind people in the congregation and pretends to heal? But what was he? Was he, that, was he a con man? Did we get duped by this guy? He said he was the Messiah. How can he be the Messiah? But, of course, he didn't seem like a con man. I mean, he, he loved people, and when lepers came to him and they were... Uh, sick, he would put his arms around them. He would touch the untouchable. He would forgive the unforgivable. He wasn't, didn't seem to be after personal gain. He wasn't taking advantage of people. He, con man doesn't work, right? So maybe he was this totally delusional madman. Maybe he was some megalomaniac who had these delusions of grandeur who thought he was something that he actually wasn't. He actually thought, maybe, maybe he thought he was the Christ, Maybe he thought he was the Messiah, but really he was just a complete lunatic, right? But then, does a, does a madman give the Sermon on the Mount? Can a person who is out of touch with reality speak into the lives of people in such a sublime, powerful way that seems to understand their deepest hurts and, and their, their, their deepest emotions? That doesn't sound like a madman. So who is he? Who was he? They've got to be wondering. And I think about Mary. Because Mary experienced the angel. The angel had come to her when she was young, when she was still a virgin, and said to her, you will conceive, and you will give birth to the Son of God, and he will rule from the throne of David forever and ever, and his kingdom will never end. Mary remembers that experience. Mary knows that she was a virgin when she conceived. So her mind has got to be going, what happened? What happened? He's not ruling forever and ever. He's dead and buried. I watched them bury him. And so she, she can't imagine what happened. There's got to be just this great sense of distress and confusion 
in their lives. She might be thinking that even while he was on the cross, there was a sliver of hope. Like if there was breath in his lungs, he could have called down angels. They could have rescued him, and then he could have established his kingdom. But that didn't happen. Now he's in a tomb. The screaming crowds have gone. Jerusalem is silent. And for Jesus' followers, the dream is over. It's Saturday, and Jesus has failed. And, of course, that failure is compounded by their failure. They know that in the moment of his greatest need, they ran. They betrayed. They denied. They took off. And so, you know, there's just this tension because they know that not only did he fail, but even if he was real, I failed, right? And when, when you know, the hawk came circling, they scurried off and ran off. They were all frauds. They were all failures. Saturday is the day the dream dies in your life. That's what Saturday is. It's the day that hope bleeds out. It isn't the worst day of your life. It's the weeks after the worst day of your life. It's the day you swallow the bitter pill of disappointment and you don't know if the taste will ever leave your mouth. That's what Saturday is. And the problem with three-day stories, these Friday, Saturday, Sunday stories, is you don't know if you are if you're in a three-day story, right? You may think, I'm in a Friday story. My life is a Friday. My life is a Saturday. There is no Sunday. Because, of course, we're looking back in retrospect. At the time, they didn't know Sunday was coming. They had no idea, right? So they're sitting there in the middle of Saturday having no idea that there's hope for the future. Um, I'm going to give you a lame example. Can I do that? You guys remember 2011 World Series, Cardinals, against Texas Rangers. Anybody remember that? Okay. Three of us. Um, you remember game six. Game six. So, you know, Cardinals had slipped in as a wild card. And it's, you know, back and forth. Rangers, Cardinals, it's getting close, right? Rangers are ahead. It's game six. It's the ninth inning. Rangers are up by two. David Freeze is at bat. He's got two strikes on him. One more strike, and Cardinals are out. Right? Texas Rangers win. Um, I have to admit, I couldn't stand the, the stress of this game. I actually fell asleep on the couch like during the eighth inning. It's really bad. But I caught up with it on ESPN.com, so don't worry. I've got this. Totally got this. You're in good hands. David Freeze gets up to bat, hits it out into center field, I think, ties up the game, right? Everybody goes crazy. It goes to the 10th inning. Rangers pull ahead. Two more points. Then the Cardinals tie it back up. It's the bottom of the 11th. It's tied. David freezes back up to bat. It's a full count, right? And he's standing there, and the question is, is it going to be Friday in Cardinal Nation, or is it going to be Sunday? Are people going to be weeping and wailing and gnashing their teeth after this next pitch? Or are they going to be dancing in the streets? And, of course, you know that David Freeze hits a, was it in the park? Was it a, yeah, it was, it was, a, it was a walk-off home run. And uh, they go on to win the World Series. And it's Sunday in St. Louis, and it's Friday in Texas, right? I told you it was a lame example, but I'm, there it is. Um, when, when Ortberg delivered this sermon, he, it was surprising because he actually 
gave it down here like two miles from Bush Stadium. And in the middle of his sermon, he admitted that he was a Cubs fan. And uh, after we had picked up rocks to stone him, no, okay. Um, but then he said, it was really funny. He said, you know what? When you're a Cubs fan, it's always Friday. It was, it was Friday yesterday. It's Friday today. It'll be Friday tomorrow. <laughs> he said, the secret to surviving as a Cubs fan is the same as the secret to parenting an adolescent. Lower your standards. Uh, one of the finest Saturday books ever written was written by C.S. Lewis. And Lewis had been a guy that was single all his life. Uh, he had wanted to get married, but he never had found the right one. And so um, at the age of 57 years old, he met a woman named Joy. And uh, she had escaped a very um, abusive relationship. Uh, like Lewis, she had been an atheist who had become a Christian. Lewis had been an atheist who had become a Christian. They found each other. They were like soulmates. They were inseparable. They loved each other. They got married. And uh, just shortly into their marriage, she started feeling pain in her hip. She went into the doctor. They found that she had bone cancer. And um, it sort of went into remission for a little while. But then shortly thereafter, she succumbed to it. And they hadn't been married four years, and she died. And Lewis was obviously completely heartbroken. And he wrote a book, and I'm going to call it a Saturday book. Uh, it was called A Grief Observed. And in it, he writes this. I'm just going to quote from him. He says, when you are happy, so happy you have no sense of needing God, so happy you are tempted to feel his claims upon you as an interruption, if you remember yourself and turn to him with gratitude and praise, you will be or so it feels welcomed with open arms. But go to him when your need is desperate, when all other help is vain. And what do you find? You find a door slammed in your face and a sound of bolting and double bolting on the inside. After that, silence. You may as well turn away. The longer you wait, the more emphatic the silence will become. What can this mean, he says? Why is he so present a commander in our time of prosperity and so very absent a help in time of trouble? Lewis wrote this in the middle of his Saturday. After the love of his life had died, but before there was any inkling of hope for his future. It was Saturday for him. We all go through Saturdays. I don't know what your Saturday is, um, but if you live long enough, you're going to experience Saturdays. Maybe you desperately want to find someone to love and you don't know if you ever will. Maybe you were up for a promotion, you saw your life going down this specific path, and then they went a different direction. Uh, maybe you were pursuing a, an education and it fell apart and you don't know what's going to happen next. Uh, maybe you prayed like crazy for your child when he was sick, but nothing. Nothing happened. Um, and so you wonder what's going on. And you're like Jesus in that moment when he was on the cross and he said, my God, my God. Why have you forsaken me? Because you don't hear him, you don't see him, you don't feel him. It's silence. There's three ways that we respond to the Saturdays in our life. One is with despair. Despair is this sense that, you know what, the disappointment, it's never going to go away, and I shouldn't expect it to, and I'm just going to manage my disappointment. I'm just going to manage the failure. I'm just going to manage the hurt. 
And then you can become cynical, you become jaded, and you just say nothing matters, life is a cruel joke. I see people, I talk to people like this all the time, where really they're, they're almost too afraid to reach out and hope again. They're too afraid to open up and become vulnerable again to the possibility that there's something better for them because they're so hurt, they're so broken, they're so disappointed, they're in the middle of their Saturday, and they just don't know if it's ever going to get better. Henry David Thoreau says that the mass of men lead lives of quiet desperation, and maybe that's you. Maybe you have gotten to this point in your life where you just drown it out. You know, you mask it with busyness or with sex or with drink or with, you know, material, you know, trinkets or whatever it is. And you just mask the hurt and you just say, look, I'm just getting through. I'm just going to get by. I don't have any expectation or hope that there's anything better. I'm just going to trudge along. Another way that people deal with the Saturdays in their life is denial. And church people are particularly good at this. Denial is where we don't actually address the pain, right? We skip along the surface of life like a flat stone across a lake, and we don't ever, we greet each other with platitudes and cliches and pat answers, and we don't ever really dig into, we don't ever really admit the hurt and the challenges and the struggles. And so we lead this shallow life because we're not willing to get into the muck and mire of our pain. And that's just a defend, another way to defend ourselves, right? We just, we just deny it. It's not that bad. Everything is great. We pretend that Sunday's already here. And then the third way, and this is the hard one, and it's not flashy, and there's not a cool slogan that goes along with it. But what we do is we wait upon the Lord in total dependence upon him. We wait patiently with faith and hope that there is a Sunday coming. We, and this waiting in total dependence is not, don't get me wrong, it's not passivity. We don't just, it's not a laissez-faire. We wait in hopeful expectation. We pray, we serve, we love, and we wait. We give, we encourage, we, we stand strong, and we wait. We wrestle, we struggle, we fight, and we wait. Waiting on the Lord, anticipating and expecting and acknowledging him in the time of our deepest struggle is not easy. If you're like me, waiting is like the worst thing that you could possibly be asked to do. I will drive 50 miles to not wait five minutes in traffic. I hate waiting. I want to keep moving, right? This was a source of contention for my wife and I when we first got together, uh, when we were dating. She is an artist. She is a creative person. Her sense of time and my sense of time were very different. We would, we would be scheduled to meet somewhere at noon. I would show up at 11.55. She's not here, so I can just totally, I can fly. Her dad's here. <laughs> Phil, he can back me up on this. Um, I would show up at 11.55 because, you know, just in case. And Rebecca would just pull in with a big smile on her face at 12.30 like, hey, I'm here. Um, and so we had to work through this. We had to work through this. And now what I do is if I want to meet her at noon, I say, let's meet at 1130, babe. And um, it works really well, but let's just keep that between us because if you tell her, that will blow it and our relationship will be in trouble. So, um, but we're called to wait on the Lord. We're called to wait in expectation that a Sunday is coming as believers in Jesus. And I'm going to give you a real quick 
sampling of what the Bible says about this. Psalm 27 says, be strong, let your heart take courage, wait for the Lord. Psalm 33, our soul waits for the Lord. Lamentations 3, the Lord is good to those who wait upon him. Psalm 130, my soul waits for the Lord more than the watchman for the morning. Isaiah 40, but they who wait upon the Lord shall renew their strength. They shall mount up with wings as eagles. They will walk and not be weary. They will run and not faint. Wait upon the Lord. And here's the reality of life (laughs) right here. I don't know if you've noticed this, but we don't get to go from mountaintop to mountaintop. If you want to go forward, if you want to go on to a next mountaintop and you're on a mountaintop, you've got to go down into the valley to cross to that next mountaintop. And down in that valley is where you learn dependence. It's where you learn that your weakness is swallowed up in his strength. It's where you learn that it's not about you, it's about him. It's where you, you learn that you can't do this on your own strength. It's in the valley. Yea, though I walk through the valley of the shadow of death. It's only in the valley that we get to meet God in a real vulnerable and deep way as I told you last week it was in the shadow of my own father's death that I was filled with strength I was filled with courage I was you know converted and made to follow Jesus and I was set on a mission but it was in that valley that that happened and this is the this is just the truth of 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 the scripture and the truth of life and you got to get this it's almost always in our time of weakness in our time of confusion, in our time of bewilderment, in our time of affliction, that God makes himself known to us. It's only in our weakness that we can be filled with his strength. It's in our Saturday that we learn to trust in God. We're in Saturday as Christians, but we are not of Saturday. We're of Sunday. Our bodies are in Saturday Our souls are in Sunday because we know about the Sunday that happened 2,000 years ago, the Sunday that changed everything, the Sunday that leveled the playing field, the Sunday that brought the mountains down, the the, the Sunday that made the crooked places straight, the Sunday that made the rough places smooth. We know about that Sunday. And so we're people of Sunday, even though we're living in Saturday. So this leads back to the question that we touched on at the beginning. Why did Jesus have to go through Saturday? And here's the answer. He didn't have to. He went through Saturday for us. He went through Saturday so that he could communicate to us that he knows what it's like to be us. He did it so that we would know that he knows what it's like to feel what we feel. He went through Saturday because you go through Saturday, because you don't know the future. That's why he went through Saturday. He went through Saturday to say, I've suffered like you suffer. I hurt like you hurt. I've bled like you bleed. I've cried like you cry. I've faced hunger like you hunger. I've faced death like you will face death. I was buried like you will be buried. And I rose again like you will rise again. I've paved the path for you, he says. Now come and follow me. That's why Jesus went 
through Saturday. And I want to say this. If the Son of God has walked through the path of shame and humiliation and suffering and injustice and scorn and agony and death and hell and the grave, is there any experience that you're likely to have in life where you can't find him? He's been there. And that is the miracle of Saturday. The miracle of Saturday is the reality that God is with you even when you don't feel him. When you don't see him, when you don't hear him, when you say, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? He's there. Even when the disappointment roars and the hope is silent, he's right there. In your darkest hour, in the gravest moment, in your own private hell, he's right there beside you. So whatever Friday you've experienced, whatever guilt or injustice or shame or darkness or or longing, just know that you're not in a one-day story. You're not in a two-day story. You're in a three-day story, and day three is coming. I should mention that our friends Bill and Betty, I made up those names, but they're real people, um, a few years later had twins. And, you know, they're the light of their life. And, uh, you know, that may not be the way God answers your prayer. He did answer their prayer, and they gave him glory for that. Um, But God is there with you in the middle of your Saturday, in the middle of your brokenness, in the middle of your hurt, in the middle of your anxiety and your confusion. He's there, and he's carving a path for you so that you can bring glory to him through your life, through the life that he has laid out for you. And that's why he went through Saturday, so that he could relate to you and you could relate to him. But you won't know what that life is unless you're willing to open up your heart in the place of your deepest hurt, in the middle of your Saturday, be vulnerable to him, lean on him, wait upon him, depend upon him. So I'll close with this. Don't lose hope on Saturday. Don't give up on Saturday. Don't let the world snuff out the ember of faith in your heart on Saturday. Be strong and do not be afraid Because we are Sunday people, and we believe that Sunday is coming. Sunday is coming. Let's bow our heads. Heavenly Father, we thank you right now. We thank you for the miracle of Saturday. We thank you for the miracle that the Son of God would hang on a cross and die for us. That's a miracle. We thank you for the miracle that the Son of God would be buried in a tomb. We thank you for the miracle, of course, that you rose again. And God, we ask you today to find us in the middle of our Saturdays or help us to find you. And even if we don't sense you, help us to trust you. Even if we don't see you, help us to learn to depend upon you. Help us to wait in trusting and faithful expectation that Sunday is coming that there will be a celebration, that there will be uh, life in our life again, that there will be joy in our life again, that there will be peace in our life again, that there will be hope, and that you will make yourself known in a powerful and a miraculous way. Give us the strength, give us the courage to trust you. Give us the strength to depend upon you. 
be made strong in our weakness today, God. We're all going through different things, and some of us don't know if you're even there. God, today I would ask that you just give us the strength to hold on. Hold on until you can reveal yourself to us in that powerful and wonderful and miraculous way. Because we know you're there, Lord. We trust you. We love you. We worship you. In Jesus' name, amen.